Couldn't have been a more precious song. Thank you so much to introduce our uh, comments for today. I'm going to take about two minutes and give Elizabeth Talbot about 48 minutes. We first met her at Redwood Camp Meeting a year ago. We were instantly amazed at her depth of knowledge of the scriptures. It was absolutely incredible. And the things that she would bring out from her deep study of the scripture and from her own personal experience, as you will see, she has been through rough waters times 10. Um, this year we could not go up to the Oregon camp meeting as we usually do. Um, and I was able to, the, the gentleman up there that does all the recording for the, for the Oregon camp meeting is a friend of mine now after many letters and phone calls and other things delivered to my door. Um, so he was able to give me the uh, Elizabeth Talbot sermons from Rhett Gladstone just happened th three weeks ago in a, in a short, short time period. I have to tell you that I suppose, well, I know I went to church when I was a newborn. I don't remember it. But from that time on, I suppose about five or six years old, I've started hearing sermons. I think I've heard thousands. I know I have, in fact. I have never, I say this from my heart now, I've never heard a sermon that touched me as much as this one you're going to see in just a few moments. And I know many of you don't like a DVD for church service, but I'm making an exception today. I was going to have something, I was halfway prepared for something that I was going to do, and then circumstances beyond our control took over our lives here, here recently. But today, uh, I think that's a blessing. And last night, I decided to preview this one. And I just have to tell you, I don't weep very often. Maybe when my children have been bad or I've said something bad to my wife or something else makes me, makes me cry. <laughs> but last night, last night I, I sat in my chair and as I watched this, I just cried. For the, the goodness of God, for the gospel of salvation, and for it's to everyone who is every born. This will change your life, I promise you. Thank you very much. My king. That's my king. And I had the privilege this whole week to study Jesus Christ with you and to know nothing else than Christ and him crucified. It's a new day for the Adventist Church. It's a new day. When this morning the president of the North American Division started his sermon saying there's only one north for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and that is the cross of Christ, I said it's a new day. <laughs> Please get your Bibles ready. We're going to go through the four Gospels tonight all together and I know you are ready to take notes and in case you forgot your paper we have people with bulletins to aid you so please raise your hand if you didn't bring your paper tonight this is going to be the most intense as far as data of all the times we were together so I'm going to wait for a moment and raise your hand if you are needing paper pen anything to write anything like that we are going to go over the four portraits of Jesus all in one night we have several hands of people that still need paper, so I'm going to wait for you. We're going to study 
the four Gospels. You guys are all experts in the four Gospels now. And you have notes and you know what you're doing. But tonight we're going to concentrate on the uniqueness of each one of the Gospels portrait of Jesus' cross and resurrection. Because each one of them will do it different because they have different audiences. And because you're ready to go out to the world to reach your world. I want you to know the four portraits that God has given us of Jesus so that you may know how to reach your world with the message of the cross and the resurrection. Anybody else is missing paper? I think most of you, okay, there's some hands on this side, please. If somebody can help me on this side, I don't want to start. Wow, we have a lot of need here. So please come fast. To the front, somebody to the front. I have like 50 hands here in the front. Everybody's in the back. Come to the front. <laughs> this front. Yeah, we have a lot of hands and I don't have anybody giving out. Thank you so much. Here comes the Savior. Please raise your hand up here in the front. I don't want to start. If you are seeking of the word, I want to take notes. I don't want to start until you can. Please, 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 up here. Over here, please, here in the front. <laughs> I think it uh, must be my accent. In the front. <laughs> Come on down. The price is right. Yeah. <sighs> All right. Are we ready? Okay. We're going to start with Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Now, you are already experts. You know that the gospel of Matthew is the gospel that chose Jesus as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And in case you missed it, right from the beginning, Matthew will say, chapter 1, verse 1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, right there, and the son of Abraham. He will divide the genealogy of Jesus in three groups of 14, not because... There's only 14 generations in each one of those groups, but because the number of the name David, the number in Hebrew was 14. And we went over this when we studied Matthew. Remember the D is a 4 in Hebrew and the V is a 6. So 464 David is the number 14. So he will divide the whole genealogy of Jesus in three groups of 14 so that you remember that Jesus is the king we were waiting for. And this is the visualization for you of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, the crown. Now, the crown is so powerful that the Jesus of Matthew is totally in control of anything that you're needing. The Jesus of Matthew is in control of. So powerful that something amazing happens at his death that no other gospel records. So we're going to go directly to Jesus' death on Matthew chapter 27, something we did not do the day that we studied this. So remember this. If you want a visualization of, of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew, is the crown. Jesus is the powerful king of kings we were waiting for. 47 Old Testament prophecies are quoted in the Gospel of Matthew. 47, of which 12 of them are a prophetic formula, he says, to fulfill what the prophet has said. Jesus is victorious. He's the king of kings. He's the new David. He's the new Moses. He's the new Israel. The whole thing, Jesus will conquer. And Matthew will make us 
understand this in very unusual and incredible ways. Matthew chapter 27 is the crucifixion of Jesus. And the whole crucifixion of Jesus is done in the framework of Psalm 22, a Psalm of David. Later on, when you go home, you can study it. The Psalm of the Righteous Sufferer, Psalm 22, that starts by saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22. But there's a lot of other things about Psalm 22 that are narrated in this crucifixion account. But there's one thing that I want to point out to you that only Matthew tells us of Jesus in his crucifixion. Chapter 27 of Matthew, verse 50. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And only Matthew records all the earthquakes that weekend. Because in that society it was believed that earthquakes were an intervention of God on earth. And definitely that weekend they were. And here we have Matthew only telling us the, the earthquake in the crucifixion and the earthquake on, in the resurrection morning. And he says, verse 51, Behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. And check this out, right there, the tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And then he realizes, he, he gets ahead of himself telling us this. And then he said, but they came out of the tombs on Sunday morning. Matthew says, something amazing happened when Jesus died. And you know what is the amazing thing, says Matthew? That death died the day Jesus died. This, this is, can you, can you imagine that only Matthew tells us there was a resurrection that weekend? Because, aside from Jesus... Because the Jews had a prophecy that when the Messiah came, he would have power over death. And Matthew says, you're not going to believe what happened. In the moment Jesus is dying, he says, death is dying too. And the bodies of the people were, were raised from the dead. For the first time in history, mortality had been conquered. And for us to know that... God raised some people from the dead, so we will know that death is now dead. Yes, that, that's a woohoo moment. That's right. So Matthew is the only one who tells us that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords was so powerful that his death killed the mortality of men that we had as a, because the wages of sin is death. And at that moment, death died and therefore resurrection was again available for the humankind but it is the resurrection morning that has helped me so many times from the gospel of matthew this this throne language this king of kings this person that is just in control that's something amazing on, on resurrection morning he sends an angel, chapter 28 of Matthew, verse 1 and 2. After the Sabbath, as he began to dawn towards the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to look at the grave, and behold, a severe earthquake. Here we go again. And the Greek for severe is mega. A mega earthquake had occurred. Check this out. An angel of the Lord came and rolled away the stone, and what did he do? He sat on it. He rolled away the stone and only in Matthew, we are told, the angel sat on it. Like, any questions? Anybody? 
this, this visualization of the angel sitting on the stone has helped me so many times in my life. Like Beth Moore says, everything that is over your head is under his feet. Don't forget that the angel sat on the stone of death and there's nothing in your life that he cannot conquer. You're dealing with an addiction to pornography. You're dealing with a problem in your mind. Hey, don't forget the angel sat on that stone. Jesus conquered death. And he also sat on it. Send the angel to remind us that the power of the resurrection is now with the believers to go out to the world with that power. And only in Matthew, Jesus ends with an authoritative statement. Let's do it. Chapter 28, verse 18. Most people don't read verse 18. They read the Great Commission and they read verse 19 and 20. But they forget the power that is behind it on verse 18. Chapter 28 of Matthew, verse 18. Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, All, did you get that? How much? All authority has been given to me. Where? In heaven and where else? Now that you get that, says Jesus, go. Therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. Now that you get that I have authority, now that you know that the angel sat on the stone, now that you know I'm wearing the crown, and that the way I got the crown was through the cross, now that you understand that death has died, now go and make disciples of all nations. The Gospel of Matthew has what we call an inclusio. Remember that academic word that we learned together? Inclusio. I-N-C-L-U-S-I-O. Inclusio. Means a narrative sandwich. When something starts and ends in the same way. Matthew has an incredible inclusio. At the beginning he says Jesus is Emmanuel. He's the only Gospel writer to tell us Jesus is Emmanuel. And Jesus ends the Gospel saying, I am with you. So God with us starts the gospel. I am with you ends the gospel. So maybe this is the portrait of Jesus that you're needing. The one that says, hey, he's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's wearing the crown. And don't ever forget that his death killed death. And that the angel, ha, I love this part, the angel rolled away the stone and sat on it. So no matter what problem you're facing, what fear of the future, well, you might need Matthew's version that says, don't forget, Jesus is in total control. All authority has been given to him on heaven and on earth. But maybe you're needing Luke's version of the story today. Luke has a whole different genealogy of Jesus than Matthew does. Luke chapter 3 tells us that Jesus is not just the son of David and of Abraham. He goes all the way to Adam because if you're a human being, you are included in the kingdom of God. As a matter of fact, Luke is so inclusive that he tells the story of a man and a woman, a man and a woman, a man and a woman. Can you believe it that Luke wants the women to know that they also can be saved? Go Luke! Woohoo! Yeah, that's the real thing here. But he doesn't just put men, woman, men, woman. He puts 
A Jew and a Gentile, a Jew and a tax collector, a Jew and a prostitute, a Jew and a centurion. To show that the love of God is so much bigger than our views of God. That he includes absolutely everyone. Those of you that have been Adventists for 30 years and your kid that has green hair, all are included in the kingdom of God. And we talked about that strongly last night. And I know the Spirit of the Lord is with us because many of you, and I can't believe this, many of you called your kids and apologized to them. Praise the Lord. And so Luke says, everybody is included. And only Luke tells us the dialogue between an evildoer and Jesus on the cross. The most outrageous of all the stories we have in the four Gospels, happens in Luke chapter 23. Please go there with me. Only Luke will tell us the story of the thief on the cross. As a matter of fact, he'll tell us a parable of the prodigal son, and then he'll tell the real story of the prodigal son and the thief on the cross, where this man, who was an evildoer, will ask for his inheritance in the kingdom, in spite of the fact that he has nothing, done nothing to deserve it. So we have Jesus and the thief on the cross, and Jesus says to him, the thief on the cross says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, chapter 23, verse 43, and we spent so many years trying to figure out where the comma is here that we lost assurance of salvation. By the way, there's no comma in the Greek, so stop that. I'm going to tell you the order of the Greek in this verse so that you never have to argue about this again. Okay? This is the order of the Greek. Truly I say to you today, with me in the middle of the sentence is the with me in the Greek, which has the weight of the sentence. With me you shall be in paradise. Four things. You can know this today. If you don't believe that the today had to do with the thief going to heaven that day, which we don't believe, then you have to believe that today you have, can have the assurance that you'll be in paradise. You can't have it both ways. Either that today means he was going to heaven that day, which I don't believe, then I have to believe that Jesus says, you don't have to wait till I come in my kingdom. You can know this today. Today, I'm going to tell you something, Jesus says. You will be. No, you might be. Let me think about it. In paradisos is the only time that Jesus uses the word paradise in all four Gospels. The same word of what we lost in Genesis 3 that we have back in Revelation 21. That's the inclusion of the Bible is the paradisos. And the fourth thing is going to be so because you're going to be with me, says Jesus. So we talked about chapter 24 of Luke. Chapter 24 of Luke is when Jesus teaches us how to interpret the scriptures. Today I brought a real Torah to show you. This is the first five books of the Bible in Hebrew. I bought it from the Jews. The thread is gold thread. It's very beautiful. Jesus that day, on the resurrection morning, decides to give a theology class. And I would give everything I own, which is not very much, to have been present in that theology class. 
Luke chapter 24 is the only chapter in all four Gospels that tells us the way to Emmaus. Starting on verse 13, there are two disciples that are going on the way to Emmaus, and they think the whole thing is lost. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. You don't understand. You didn't get it. You didn't get it. And then on verse 25, he starts telling them that there was a plan. Verse 25, he said to them, Oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and enter into his glory? And here we got, have it. Can you imagine Jesus opening the scroll? Beginning with Moses. Beginning with Moses. And with all these prophets, all the prophets, he explained to them, Everything concerning himself in all the scriptures. And I told you when we studied this that the word explain in Greek is diarmenuo, where we get the word hermeneutics. All the pastors, you know, had to take classes on hermeneutics, how we interpret the Bible. Here Jesus says, I'm going to teach you diarmenuo. I'm going to teach you how to interpret. This is the interpretation. All the law and all the prophets are about me. That's it. That's where you start. So if you don't know what the Sabbath has to do with the cross... You have not understood it. If you had not understood that the Sabbath is our rest from our works in the completed work of Christ, you have not understood your keeping of the Sabbath. If you don't understand what the sanctuary has to do with Jesus, or the Passover has to do with Jesus, or the Exodus has to do with Jesus, Jesus says, ah, I'm going to give you an interpretive rule. There was a plan all along, and everything in the Bible was pointing to the cross. All of it, says Jesus. And in case they didn't understand it, he shows up again to the rest of the disciples. Verse 44, all of them now are present. And Jesus repeats this hermeneutical tool. Luke 24, verse 44. He said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while you were, were still with you. That all these things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms had to be completed. Then, ah, I love this verb in the Greek, he opened their minds. And the word open in the Greek is the same one that was used in the gospel where he opened the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. This time he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And the word understand would be better translated as connect the dots. They had not connected the dots. Well, then... They understood the whole thing was a plan. And maybe this is a version of the gospel you're needing today because you're facing something and you cannot understand how this could be God's plan. Because they didn't understand how it could be God's plan. And Jesus is saying, look, there is a plan. You don't have to always understand it. But there was a plan all along from the beginning. And you're included in this plan. When I went through hard times in my life, I had a keychain I carried with me everywhere. And he said, I don't know the master plan, but I know the master planned it, and I'm included. I don't know the master plan, but I know the master planned it, and I'm included. So maybe you're needing this version that says, look, the whole Bible was a plan. It was a whole story. The whole thing. The cross was the plan. It was not an accident. And, and your life is planned. If you allow God to take you where you're supposed to go, once you surrender to the plan, even when you don't understand it, something amazing happens to you. 
Remember the inclusion of Luke? Does anybody remember what the inclusion of Luke was? Remember the angels come, came and said, we bring you good news of what kind of joy? Mega joy. But the disciples didn't get the mega joy until the very end. The last three verses of this gospel. Luke chapter 24, verse 51. He was blessing them. He parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they, after worshiping him, returned to Jerusalem with what kind of joy? And what do we call the mega joy in this camp meeting? <laughs> Can you imagine? <laughs> Can you imagine that they went back with a woohoo? That's what they went back with. And you know, I can't wait for you to go back to your churches and to your families. I can't wait because I am convinced that during this week you got the woohoo. I've never been as convinced in my life in any camp meeting as I have been in this one. Because this morning, the president of the NAD said, how many ministers of the gospel are here? And he was stunned when all of you got up. He said to me over lunch, this has never happened to me. And I said, these people are ready. Yes, they got the woohoo deep in their hearts. So maybe you're needing Matthew's version of the gospel that says Jesus is in control and his death was a victory. And the angel rolled away the stone and sat on it. Or maybe you're needing Luke's version of the gospel that says, look, there is a plan. As a matter of fact, the plan was that you can get to paradise by Jesus. John's version of the gospel. Let's go to John chapter 1, verse 1. John does not have a genealogy of Jesus that takes you to David or Abraham like Matthew does. He doesn't have a genealogy of Jesus that takes you to Adam like Luke does. He only has one verse that is the whole genealogy of Jesus and is a very known verse. In the beginning was... Wow, you guys sounded awesome. See, I have a quote that said, meeting. In, <laughs> was the word, and the word was with God. Was God. Jesus that you get in the Gospel of John. And he wants to prove to you that Jesus is God. And he writes the whole Gospel in how many levels? Two levels. Every story in the Gospel of John has two levels. The level that meets your logical eye and the second level, which is the level that you can access only when you believe in Jesus Christ. Nicodemus, you got to be born again. How can I be born again and enter into my mother's womb? No, says Jesus, I'm not talking about this level. I'm talking about this level. Samaritan woman, give me some water, but ask me for water. Sir, the well is deep. You have a bucket. Oh no, says Jesus, I'm not talking about this water, I'm talking about this water. Every story in the Gospel of John has how many levels? And it has two levels because Jesus is human and he's also divine. So there's another reality you have to only come to accept by faith. And that is salvation. You need the glasses, says John. I'm going to offer you glasses, says John. And what is the key word for John? What is the key word? 
believe. And how many times do we have the word believe in the Gospel of John? Very good. 97 times we have the word believe. Let's go to his purpose statement. John chapter 20. Go there, please. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31 is when John tells us why he decided to write this gospel. Verse 30 of chapter 20. Therefore, many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may know you have eternal life. You know, you need the glasses, says John. There's no way you're ever going to have the assurance of salvation unless you know that there is a pair of glasses that allows you to see a level that you don't see with your eyes. And I'm going to be together with Martin Luther until the day I die in saying this. I don't know how I could ever be lost. <laughs> see, the, the believer lives in two realities, the one that you see and the one you believe in. And so John is the only one who tells us the story of the disciple that decided he has had it. He wasn't going to believe anymore. It's right before the purpose statement. John chapter 20, verse 26, tells us of the disciple who said, I can't believe unless I see. I'm sick of this. And you might be there today. You might say, you have no idea what I'm going through. You don't know my marriage. You don't know my job. You don't know my church. And John will say, he's a pair of glasses. Because you're seeing with your eyes. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, a whole new reality opens up. And Thomas needed glasses. Chapter 20 of John Verse 24, Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails. I'm going to give a little scholarly parenthesis here. This is the only place we have in the Gospels that we know that Jesus was nailed to the cross, not just put on the cross. Because Thomas asked to see the signs of the nails in his hands. So he said, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. That's it. I'm done. After eight days, verse 26, his disciples were again inside and Thomas with them. Jesus came. He showed up and said, peace be with you. And he called Thomas. Here, he said, Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here with your hand and put it in my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. And at that moment, Thomas put his glasses on. And he said something that nobody else in all of the four Gospels said to Jesus. He knelt down and he said, My Lord and my God. Nobody else calls Jesus God in all four gospels they call him son of god which was a royal title like the emperor had and and the pharaoh had and nobody calls jesus god other than thomas and this is how john proves his thesis that in the beginning was the word and the word was with god and the word was god
That's the inclusio of John. So perhaps you are needing glasses today because things are going on in your life and especially your salvation. You never perhaps had the assurance and the joy of your salvation because what you see is not very good. And God says, yeah, that's why you need the glasses. And Jesus ends this dialogue with Thomas with a blessing for you, everyone that is here today in Gladstone camp meeting. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see me. All those people are in the Gladstone camp meeting. Blessed are they, for they did not see me and yet believed. So, let's see. What portrait of Jesus do you need today? The crown of Matthew that says, Jesus, oh yes, Jesus is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. His death conquered death. The angel rolled away the stone and sat on it. Do you need Luke that says, look, there is a plan. Don't despair. The whole thing was planned. And there is a master plan. You don't know it, but you know this. The master planned it and you're included. Or are you needing the glasses of John that says, you got to believe what Jesus said on the cross. Because only in John, Jesus says, it is finished, people. It's finished. So you better get your woohoo going, says John. In, in different words in the Greek. <laughs> and you know, I need all these three all the time. But the one that I need every single time, every single weekend when I come to preach is the Gospel of Mark. And I'm going to take you there today with the most amazing ending of what the Gospel really is. And only Mark tells us this. Mark chapter 1, verse 1. Mark is the only book who calls his Gospel the Gospel. No other Gospel says that they are going to tell us the Gospel. Only Mark he says at the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 1, this is the beginning of the gospel or good news. As you know, we get the word gospel from the old English, God's spell, which means good news. So it got contracted. We ended up with gospel. So this is the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, he says. And I just hinted the other day when we did Mark that it is believed that this gospel is Peter's version of the story. Because John Mark traveled with Peter in the book of Acts. And this is the gospel that has Peter in the worst light of all the four gospels. Peter is constantly putting his foot in his mouth in this gospel. And, and so it makes sense that Peter told Mark all these things and Mark wrote everything down. You're not going to believe what I said, Mark. Hold on, hold on, slow down. And I did this, and I did that. What? He wrote down everything Peter said. The reason why I need this gospel is because of something that happens to this big mouth disciple. You know why I need it? Because I used to have a big mouth. I used to be Peter. I used to have all the answers. I used to see in black and white. I used to say, I will never, nothing will ever happen to me. I used to say, my last name is important in this church. My father is the 
director of the White State of the General Conference, these things don't happen to me. I was Peter with a big mouth. Chapter 14, verse 22. Please go there with me. This is one of the most profound moments that we have in all four Gospels. Chapter 14, verse 22. Tells us that Jesus decided to have Passover with his disciples. Chapter 14, verse 22. While they were eating, he took, you know the four verbs already very well. He took the bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. Verse 24, he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. I will not drink it again because I'm going to drink it with you in the kingdom. And then something amazing happens. Oh, if you get this tonight, I would have achieved my mission. He says something very, very weird. He just made a covenant with his disciples. And then he said on verse 27, you will all abandon me tonight. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep shall be scattered. But I, after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. Don't forget this. What kind of a God is this that we serve that makes the covenant with failing disciples? And he knows they're going to fail. And he still makes the covenant. He says, this is the blood of the covenant. By the way, you all will fail me. You know, when you make a covenant, you hope that the other person will also be faithful. When I married my husband, Patrick, I made a covenant that we would be faithful to each other. And we are faithful to each other. Right? I, I, I'm just checking. Is the covenant going okay? Is that laughter one of approval? or We make covenants among people. And we're expecting the other person to be faithful to the covenant. Here God makes the covenant. And he says, you will all abandon me tonight. But please know that my grace will be sufficient and my blood will be enough and I will see you again in Galilee. But Peter, with his big mouth, says, oh, come on, Jesus. Maybe those weakly, weaklings need that type of a savior. Not me. I'm Peter. He's my business card. Come on, Jesus. You think I'm going to deny you? Peter says, verse 29, he <laughs> Peter said to him, even though all, all those people in Oregon might fall, you, fall, fall away, I will not. You don't understand, Jesus. I will not fall away. And Jesus, and I, I imagine Jesus rubbing the head of Peter saying, ah, yeah, 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 Peter, Peter, Peter. Truly I say to you this very night before the rooster crows twice, you yourself, and it's an emphatic in the Greek. You yourself, Peter. Can you read my lips? You will deny me three times. Verse 31. But Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. I was Peter. I was such a Pharisee, I can't even tell you about it. I have repented of my pharisaical sins. And God has forgiven me. 
but he has closed my mouth for good. You know, I, if, you, if you would have known me a few years ago, if you were whistling the wrong tune on the Sabbath, you were going to hear it from me. If you didn't interpret the Bible exactly like I did, I would have crushed your spirit to uphold the letter of the law. But God gave me the blessed experience of my divorce. It was a blessed experience because I lost my honor. I lost everything. I lost everything. After 15 years of marriage, the marriage did not go forward. And I had to face myself with all you people knowing now who I really am. The fact that things do fail. The things don't always turn out right. And God gave me the blessed experience to see myself in real light. I saw myself as I really am. Somebody who doesn't deserve a thing. But that he has given me in Christ everything. And you know, this changed my life because this is the journey from your head to your heart, the longest journey a human being will ever have. I had it then because I was at the bottom, you know, with nothing. All my plan A, plans B, plan C had failed. My ex-husband was unfaithful and I was a control freak and it didn't work out. And you know, this type of thing doesn't happen to the saints or does it? But of course, we all have a PhD in superficial truth, so nobody knows anything about anybody else. I told you I work with ministers who are in crisis, who are sex addicts, who drink alcohol, who are addicts, drugs, etc. It is believed seven out of our or ten ministers, seven out of ten ministers are struggling with one of those addictions. But nobody talks about it, you see. Because we're all perfect and we all know how to loudly say, I will not deny you. I had the great experience in my life of falling to the bottom. Because when everything is stripped away from you, everything, then you realize that God is enough. Only then, when you're at the bottom, when you're crushed. Now my life is wonderful. I have a husband for many, many years who, who I love. I have three stepdaughters. I have six grandchildren. I preach the gospel every day. But you know what? I preach it with a full awareness that the privilege I have of preaching the gospel doesn't have anything to do with me being gifted or being good or having a medal or God asking me for permission to take me to heaven like I used to think he had to do. No, no. You know what I say? God has used donkeys in the past to talk for him. This time, I'm the donkey of the day. The understanding that you are a sinner and don't deserve salvation is what Peter needed to become a minister of the gospel. Wounded healers are the only ones who God can really use. The ones that know they don't deserve it. And yet they have it. 
simul justus et peccator, reformation, you know simultaneously that you're a sinner and simultaneously you know you've been declared just because of Christ's righteousness. So something happens to Peter. At the end of chapter 14, he's weeping. And I hope you get the blessed experience in your life to weep, to weep, to realize that you don't make it, that you can't make it, that you will never make it. Because until you don't know the bad news, you can't rejoice in the good news. We are not going to be saved because of who we are. We are going to be saved because of who he is and what he has done. That is a blessed experience when you get there. And what happened to Peter on resurrection morning that is only recorded in this gospel. I'm hoping that it will happen to you today. Turn with me to Mark chapter 16. No other gospel records this particular data that I'm about to share with you. Peter is weeping at the end of chapter 14. The big, big mouth Peter has been crushed. And something happens on resurrection morning. Chapter 16 of Mark, verse 2. Very early in the first day of the week, they came to the tomb. When the sun had risen, they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? They didn't know what Matthew knew, that the angel was sitting on it. Verse 4, looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed. And he said to them, do not be amazed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who has been crucified. He has risen. He's not here. Behold, here's the place where they laid him. And here it is, only in the Gospel of Mark. Here it is, slowly. Go and tell his disciples, and what? And Peter, by name, only in this gospel. Go tell the disciples and Peter that he's going ahead of you to Galilee. I, I can imagine Jesus coming out of the tomb and saying to the angel, don't forget to mention Peter by name. Please don't forget because Peter's not going to come because he's been crushed because he knows he doesn't qualify. And only now I can use him. Only now that he knows he doesn't deserve it. Don't forget to mention Peter by name. <laughs> and I became convinced that on that resurrection morning, <laughs> I've been called by name. I became convinced that in spite of who I am, Jesus told the angel, go tell the disciples and Elizabeth that I'm going to see her face to face. Don't forget to mention her by name, please. And you know what? That day, to all of you who have failed, to all of you that know you have failed, to all of you, Jesus called you, by name. And only then, only then, when, when this gospel of the two words, I call it the gospel of the two words, and Peter, when you believe that God has called you by name, and here says Elizabeth in case you can't read it with a camera, only then God can call you to the ministry. Only then he called Peter and said, Peter, do you love me? 
Lord, I'm so imperfect. I don't even know what to tell you. You know that I love you. But really, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Really? Lord, you know all things. I know, I know I denied you, but I really love you. Okay, now, Peter, now you're ready to feed my sheep. Only now, when your big mouth is closed. I became convinced that on that resurrection morning, he called my name. So I need all the Gospels. I know the one that says, yes, I have a powerful Savior who conquered death. And everything that is over my head is under his feet. And the angel rolled away the stone and sat on it. And, and, you know, I need Luke because sometimes I get lost. And I need to remember that there is a plan. And that I can trust it even when I don't understand it. And that when I surrender to this plan, I get the mega joy, the woohoo joy of, of the angels and the disciples. I also need John that is constantly offering me glasses. Because so many times I look at myself and I said, how in the world I could ever be saved? And John says, oh, come on, put the glasses on and look at Jesus. And then I say, how in the world could I ever be lost? But every day, every single day, I need Mark's version of the gospel that says <laughs> that he has made a covenant with failing disciples. And that on that resurrection morning, he called my name. And until the day I die, I'm going to be preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. The one that I don't deserve and that yet I have. And, and you know what? <laughs> That's my story and I'm sticking to it. I'm going to ask you to repeat after me every sentence of Isaiah 43.1. Every sentence of Isaiah 43.1. Ready? I'm going to say it, then you say it. Do not be afraid. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. I'm going to finish tonight with a video that has changed my life that I shared with you last year. I have brought the official video because many of you have not seen it. And I think this is the closest portrait I can give you of Jesus. In contemporary history is the team the Hoyt team the team of a father and son who run marathons together you probably have seen it but I need you to see it in this context Rick and Dick Hoyt I've been following their life for 15 years and they run marathons together but the son is handicapped quadriplegic with cerebral palsy one day when when the boy was young, they entered a 5K marathon. And the father took this totally handicapped son through the finish line for this 5K in the, on the wheelchair. When they crossed the finish line, he saw a smile on his son's face. But his son cannot talk. He cannot coordinate his hands or his legs. He just had a big smile. But he's very smart, and they had created a computer for him to type with his forehead because he could communicate, he just couldn't speak. So they got home, and the father rushed to see why his son, his handicapped son, was so happy when they crossed the finish line. So they got home, and the son typed, Dad, when we cross the finish line today, can you imagine him typing this? It was the first time 
I felt like I was a winner. I felt like I was not handicapped. I felt like I could walk. And the father said to the son, Oh, my son, of course you're a winner. You're my son. We're going to enter every possible marathon. And I will take you to the finish line every single time because you're my son and you're a winner. So they entered in the last 15 years many hundreds of marathons. This year, the father turned 70 years old and they entered the Boston Marathon. But it was the day that I saw the Ironman triathlon. 112 miles of biking, 26.5 miles of running, 2.5 miles of swimming in Hawaii. And I saw this father take the sun all the way to the finish line through the 112 miles of biking and the 26.5 miles of running and the 2.5 miles of swimming. When I saw this father take his son to the finish line and I saw the son's smile when they crossed it, it's the first time I understood the gospel. I understood that I am that handicapped child. I understood what Paul said. You can start rejoicing because you're already sitting in the thrones of heaven. We're waiting for Jesus to come for us, but he has conquered the finish line. It was the first time I understood this because I had never realized how handicapped I am. There is a song in this video, My Redeemer Lives. Now you know the word in Hebrew, my Goel lives, my kinsman redeemer lives, the one who created me, his image that obligated himself to rescuing me because he's my closest of kin. My Redeemer lives. Eternal Father, we're so grateful and thankful, joyous, so we can hear the message this morning of the wonderful salvation of Jesus Christ, and it includes every one of us. Whether we want it or not, Jesus is there waiting with an open door, just saying, Come unto me and be ye saved. Lord, help us today to never forget this beautiful message the rest of our lives until you come. In Jesus' name, amen and amen.